Okay, before the break, we had introduced the subject of excellence of love in Church of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. We went through to indicate that the 13th chapter is an important chapter that this uh, with love, that there is no other passage that has more to say about love in the New Testament than that chapter. However, that there are those who uh, have misused it in the sense that they they are taking the concept of love, applying it to marriage, wedding, and so on, which we said, while the concept of love is important in marriage, but that's not. This is not from this thirteen chapter. That the thirteen chapter is more concerned with the love within the Church of Christ in worship situation. Now, of course, we indicated that uh, some commentators don't even believe the Apostle Paul wrote this thirteen chapter, and some say, "Well, well he wrote it for some other purpose." But now, when he was sending this letter, he took that and put it in there. Anyway, we went through to uh, uh, see that the apostle has to deal with the problem of love because of what we call like a pattern. Before he introduced the problem of idolatry or sin sacrifice to idols, that he began with the concept of love. So now, before he goes into dealing with the problems of speaking in tongues that he did in the 14th chapter, he also began in the 13th chapter with the concept of love, which we describe as being parenthetical, although it is a little bit different because the issue that he deals with in in chapter 13 is love, but then he also mentions the problem of speaking in tongues and prophecy. So with all of that, we stated that the message then, that will go through the uh, exposition of the 13th chapter, is this. That a life uh, characterized by love is more important in the church of Christ than temporary exercise of spiritual gifts. And we indicated that uh, we will expand on this uh, message by using three assertions that we derive from the passage that's before us. Now, the first assertion is that the exercise of the gift of speaking in tongues without a life characterized by love is meaningless in that it gives a confusing message. And I use the illustration of the fact that, yeah, we can say we're Christians, but when we open our mouth or when we do certain things, it belies what we believe in, and therefore we become confusing to unbelievers. They don't know which way to go when we say we're Christians. They don't know what that means. Now, anyway, we indicated also that the apostle introduced then a hypothetical situation 
in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1 where he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. So we had a, looked at the word uh, tongues. We also looked at the word men. And we began to look at the word angels. And that is where we stopped before we went on break because we indicated that the Greek word translated angel can mean messenger. But it can mean divine messengers or supernatural messengers sent by God as was the case of those of the angel God sent to rescue the apostles from jail according to Acts chapter 5 verse 19 and that's where we begin our study this second half. It is but during the night, an angel, that is a Greek word, Angelos, of the, uh, of the Lord, opened the door of the jail and brought them out. Now the word also can refer to fallen angels, as in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 4 reads, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but send them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeon to be held for judgment. So here, angels refer to the fallen angels. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1, the word is used to describe a supernatural being created by God to serve him. That is, an angel or a messenger of God. A messenger of God. Now the phrasing of First Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1, when it says, in the tongues of men and of angels, imply that angels have a language. By which they communicate within themselves and also with God. Now we do not know what angelic language is despite various speculations by commentators. Now something that it could have been, uh, that it, it is what the Apostle Paul referred to. When he was transported to heaven, which he didn't, you know, didn't say directly, but he did it directly in Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verse four. So they said when Paul, when that when Paul was trans, uh, transported to heaven, that he heard what he heard was angelic language. That's what they say. Because of this passage, it said, was caught up to paradise. That's the third heaven. He heard inexpressible things. Things that man is not permitted to tell. So they say, whatever he had, that was angelic language. Well, we cannot be certain that what the apostle had was angelic language. 
Now one thing we know is this, that the idea of angelic language is recognized elsewhere in other books. See, the Old Testament pseudographer of the Testament of Job refers to such in describing the one called Hemera in the Testament of Job, chapter 48, verse 3. You don't have it, so you just listen, I'll read it for you. Now, what I'm saying is this idea of angelic language. Sure, it's mentioned in this passage, but we do have other sources among the uh, writings of the Hebrew people, or that is where that concept comes. And one of them is, is called the uh, Testament of Job. And that is Job chapter 48, verse 3. The Testament of Job 48, verse 3. Since you don't have that source, let me read you what it says. This is what it says. But she, that is a, a one called Hemera, she spoke ecstatically in the angelic dialect, sending up a hymn to God in accord with the hymenic style of the angels. And as she spoke ecstatically, she allowed the spirit to be inscribed on her garment. That's just how that is. So that's uh, what we call a pseudograph of the Old Testament. It's, we don't recognize it as inspired, but they contain some good information. So this is what tells us that other sources recognize angelic language because here it talks about angelic dialect. Now that aside, what we know though is that the communication of angels recorded in the scripture <coughs> excuse me, usually involves the use of human language of the person with whom an angel communicates since angels in such cases take on human appearance. Thus, when the two angels that came to Sodom to destroy it, they communicated with Lot in the language he spoke, as implied in the in interaction between him and the angels recorded for us in Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. Genesis Chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 19, verse 1 reads, The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, Please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and day go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. So they were speaking human language. Because they appeared as humans. When uh, Angel Gabriel announced to Mary the virgin pregnancy and, and so the virgin birth of Christ, he also communicated 
to her in human language, presumably in Aramaic, that Mary knew as we read in Luke chapter 1 verses 30 and 31. Luke chapter 1 verses 30 through 31. It reads, But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with a with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Now so even when angels communicated with each other in the hearing of humans, they communicated in a human language of the one who hears them. Now this we gather from the communication between uh, angels in Zechariah's vision according to Zechariah chapter 2 verses 3 and 4. Zechariah chapter 2 verses 3 and 4. Zechariah chapter 2 verses 3 and 4. It is, Then the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said to him, now that's one angel speaking to another angel. Ron, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. So here, two angels communicating, but they communicated so that Zechariah can hear what they're saying. So, what we know is, yes, they have their language, but when they communicate with humans, they use human language. Anyway, this notwithstanding, the fact is that the angels then have the language through which they communicate to one another and to God. They have a language by which they communicate with God. That they do so is implied in the fact that they are to praise God as the Holy Spirit declares through the instruction of the psalmist directed to them in Psalm 103, verse 20. Psalm 103, verse 20. Psalm 103, verse 20 reads, Praise the Lord. You his angels, you mighty ones, who do his bidding, who obey his word. Now, the psalmist is there praising, but it's praise the Lord that's, you know, use your language and praise him. So, it is the language, uh, this angelic language that the apostle meant 
in the phrase that we're studying in First Corinthians 12, I mean chapter 13, verse 1, when he said, In the tongues of men and of angels. Hence, he implies that it is possible, but less likely, that a person could speak in the language of angels and not know what the person is saying. He says, less likely, but it can happen. That's what the apostle is assuming. Now, it is interesting, though, that the apostle referenced the gift of speaking in tongues first, as he begins to deal with the subject of love. Now, one wonders why that is the case. It is probably because that was a spiritual gift that caused more problems in Corinth than others, as evident from the fact the apostle devoted greater time and space in this epistle addressing the problems of tongues than any other spiritual gift that he mentioned in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians. So, that was a problem gift, so to say. So, the apostle grants the possibility that a person could speak in either human or angelic language. So, he could make his point that such exercise of the gift of speaking in tongues sends a meaningless and a confusing message unless what he wrote is realized, which we're going to be continuing to study. Now, the thing that the apostle is concerned with is introduced with the word birth in the verbal phrase of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Look at what it says. But have not love. Granted you can speak with the tongues of angels, the language of angels. Granting that. But, he says, but have not love. Now the conjunction both, of course, yes, used simply to uh, contrast two things the apostle uh, assumed to be true for the sake of his assertion in the verse that we're considering. Now the thing the apostle contrasts with that he assumed to be uh, possible in the sense of speaking of human or angelic language is the exercise of spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues is introduced then in the NIV with the word have. Look at what he said. Uh, but have not love. That word have is really translated from a Greek word that no doubt means to have in the sense of to possess or, or, uh, or own something. As the Lord Jesus used uh, that to rebuke the Jews that they not believe in him although they studied the scripture as a way to obtain eternal life according to John chapter 5 verse 39. John chapter 5, verse 39. You can put your marker in John, because I'm going to go to one passage and come right back to the Gospel of John. John chapter 5, verse 39 reads, You diligently study the scriptures, because you think that by them you possess, that's a Greek word, uh, Echo, you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. 
Now the Greek word may mean to have on, to have on, that is to, or to wear, to wear. The wearing of clothes, as it is used in the lost parable of the wedding banquet, to describe a person who came in without wearing the wedding dress, as we read in Matthew chapter 12, I mean chapter 22, verse 12. Matthew chapter 22, verse 12. Matthew chapter 22, verse 12 reads, Friend, he asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. So, really, Without here, I mean, without wearing wedding clothes. Now, the uh, word may mean to need, as it is used by the, the Lord in, he, in response to Peter's requesting him not only to wash his feet, but his entire body during the Last Supper of Jesus Christ with his disciples, as recorded in, in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 10. John chapter 13, verse 10. It is, Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs, that's a Greek word here, strongly needs, needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are, and you are clean, Though not every one of you. Now the word may mean to enjoy, to enjoy. As it is used to describe the state of the church in Jerusalem after the conversion of Paul, as we read in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Acts chapter 9 verse 31 reads, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. See that word here, that we have here that uh, it enjoyed. That's a Greek word, echo, that means have. But here it has the meaning of enjoy. So in our passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, it means to have in the sense of to possess inwardly, to possess inwardly, or to experience something. That's what it means to possess inwardly or to experience. Experience something. So the apostle then, of course, used the present tense in the Greek, implying that what the apostle states, one possesses inwardly or experiences, is that which occurs frequently at repeated intervals that it could be said to be 
habitual. In other words, the apostle is not concerned with something that happens once, but he is concerned with what characterizes a person's lifestyle. Now, so we are saying that the apostle envisions a lifestyle characterized by what he says a person does not possess inwardly or does not experience, as in that verbal phrase where we started, they have not love. In other words, inwardly that person doesn't possess that. So the apostle uh, recognizes or recognizes that it is possible for a person to possess what he is concerned about here. Now he does not see that as something impossible or that does not even happen because of the word not that he used. Uh, that word not is translated from a Greek particle that is a subjective negative instead of another uh, Greek negative that is more objective uh, where it denies the reality of an alleged fact and does it emphatically and fully. So the negative the apostle used implies that it is possible for a person to possess at an instant what he mentions but may not be that which characterizes the individual lifestyle. It is possible to have it just once. But what his concern is what characterizes lifestyle. Now we know habit is you do one, something once, you do it again, you do it again, before you know it, it's a habit. So the main concern of the apostle, that a person who speaks in human or angelic language as a part of the exercise of the spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues, that may not have inwardly as a matter of lifestyle, rather than a once in a while occurrence is described then in that verbal phrase of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1. But have not love. But have not love. That is his thing. It's not that you just love once. That is a habit. The person has formed a habit of loving. But he says if you don't have that habit, then everything he's saying begins to uh, make sense. Anyway, the word love is translated from a Greek, from a specific Greek uh, word. Most of you know that. I can't be. That appears nine times in this certain chapter of 1 Corinthians. Because of its importance, because of the importance of the word love. Now, we need to examine the Greek word in a little more detail. We need to do that. Now you see though, the recipients of this epistle were primarily Greek speaking. So, they would know that there are other three Greek nouns for the major sense of love. They would know that. So, in order so they can understand what's going on, let us also follow them. To understand some of the uh, Greek word used that can be translated love as well. Now, the first of these words is a Greek word, eros, E R O S, eros. 
that refers to sexual love or passionate love. Now this is what most people in this culture understand love to mean as can be seen on what is often portrayed on the TV as love. Now erotic love needs of course no explanation except to say that most problems attributed to love relationships really could be traced to this kind of love. Now the believer should remember that this can form a part of love that is advocated in the clause that we are considering under the condition under only one condition only and that is only in the marriage bound. If it, in that case it will be understood as that unique bond between a man and a woman not what uh, people here in the West uh, often call marriage but it only something defined between a man and a woman who are married. It can be a part of it. So this Greek word eros does not appear in the New Testament. And for a good reason. Since the New Testament is concerned much more with a higher form of love. It's more concerned with a higher form of love. Now this is not to say that the concept of romantic love does not appear in the Bible. Or that there is anything wrong with romantic love under proper condition of marriage. Since the Greek word is used in the Septuagint for illicit sexual relationship in Proverbs chapter 7 verse 18. Proverbs 7 verse 18. This is describing the wayward woman or a very loose woman. So it reads, Come, let's drink deep of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. See, the word love appears twice in this verse of uh, Proverbs, chapter 7. The first word love here is translated from a Greek, uh, from actually the third Greek word we're going to be looking at. Philia, uh, we'll look at it later on. Uh, while that's the first one. The second, love, when it says, let's enjoy ourselves with love, that word love is translated from the Greek word eros. Eros, that we said is only pertains primarily to sexual love. Now, a second of the other Greek nouns for major expression of love is a, a Greek word, storge, or storge. Storge. S T O R G E. Storge. That's a second uh, noun, a Greek word that also means love. 
Now, the authorities tell us that this refers either to the tender feelings that parents naturally feel towards their children or children toward their siblings and parents or to the bond that unites husband and wife. Now this word does not appear in our inspired word of God. In other words, you don't find it in the Septuagint, neither in the New Testament uh, epi- uh, writings. Although that word is found in the apocryphical book of third and fourth Maccabees. Maccabees. So that's the second, but it, it has to do with, as they say, a sense of feeling towards our family members. A third of the other Greek nouns for the expression of love is philia. P-H-I-L-I-A-Philia. That again, the authorities tell us is more concerned with friendship. So it's always characterized by a kindly attitude and goodwill. It is used in the Septuagint to contrast love and hatred in Proverbs chapter 15 verse 17. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 17. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 17 reads, Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. Because most uh, when we read some of these things, don't, don't think people are living like we live today in the United States. Where people eat meat every day. Most part of the, at that time, not, you know, people ate meat rarely. So, so to eat meat in some cases becomes a luxury. So that's why he said it's better for you to eat all vegetables in a house where love exists than to eat all this fattened cow and there's a fighting and hatred. That's the point. But the key thing though is that the word love here is a Greek word philia. However, none of these really uh, three Greek words was used by the apostle. Instead, he used a different Greek word that has some uniqueness to it. Now the word love, when, in that phrase when he said, but have not love. Again, it's translated from a Greek word, agape, that as we have indicated, has several uniqueness. From the other three Greek words for expressing major concept of love. So it is unique in its usages both in the classical Greek and in the Greek Bible. Now scholars in the past have stated that it does not appear in classical Greek. That's the word agape does not appear in classical Greek. But there is at least one doubtful occurrence 
of the word in classical Greek that caused some to think that the word must have been used in classical uh, Greek literature. Now because the supposed occurrence is therefore, we could say for all practical purposes that the scholars who uh, state that the word is not used in classical Greek as a word for love may indeed be correct because the only occurrence is so doubtful. Anyway, so the first appearance of a Greek word is actually in the Septuagint where it is used in at least three ways. It is used for love in the sense of human passion toward another of the type possessed by those who have died that they no longer have towards those who are alive, as stated in Septuagint of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 6. Ecclesiastes, that's where the Greek word agape is used. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 6 reads, Dear love, is the two agents use the word agape. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again would they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Now the word is also used in the Septuagint to describe sexual love in Song of Solomon, chapter 3. Verse 5. Song of Solomon. Chapter 3. Verse 5. It is. Daughters. Of Jerusalem. I charge you. By the gazelles. Um, by the doors of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Hear that word love here? Sagate. Now it is used only once in the Septuagint to describe human love for God. Uh, presented of course in the imagery of bride's love for a husband in the Septuagint of Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 2. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 2. They go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me, that's God speaking to Israel, and followed me through the desert, through a land not soon. Now the, these usages in the Septuagint notwithstanding, 
the word is used more commonly in the New Testament in ways that are different from its usages in the Septuagint. So we can we say this because except for our Greek word, the only other Greek noun of the Greek words that uh, for the major concept of love that we have mentioned that is found in the New Testament is the Greek word philia. philia. And that Greek word of course means friendship. And it appears only once in the New Testament in, in a, a statement that is both neg- in a context of negative and positive of James chapter 4 verse 4. James chapter 4 verse 4. James chapter 4 verse 4. Reads, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend that's Syria, no? Of the world becomes an enemy of God. You see, that's, you know, the Bible is very clear. There's no and in between when it comes to dealing with God. You're either on his side or you're not. So, when a person puts one foot, you love the things of this world. And you think you love God. No, God said, no, you don't walk that way. You either love me and despise the things of the world or you don't. So this is why he could say that if you are a friend of the world, that you love the world, then you cannot be a friend to God. Now the Greek word then, agape, used in the verbal phrase that was taught in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1, but have not love, is really used in distinctive ways in the Greek New Testament. Very distinctive ways. And that's what we need to grasp, those distinctive ways. It is the Greek word that is used, although in the plural, to describe the common meal eaten by the early church in connection with their worship for the purpose of fostering and expressing mutual affection and concern. And so the Greek word then means fellowship meal or love feast, as it is used in Jude 12. So in the plural, it is something distinctive, referring to a kind of feast that believers hold, which today many Christians don't think is important, which again it's, <laughs> it's an indication of how disobedient people are today when it comes to the word of God. It is, Jude 12 reads, These men are blemishes at your love feast. That's a Greek word, agape, but here it's in the plural. Love feast. With you, with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves, they are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Autumn trees, 
without fruit, and uprooted twice dead. Now, our Greek word is the only Greek noun of all the Greek nouns used to express the major concept of love in the Greek that is used to describe the relationship between God, the Father, and God, the Son. Using the word love in the English as it is used in the priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ recorded in John chapter 17 verse 26. John chapter 17 verse 26 and hold on to John, the gospel of John. So we're seeing that this is a, that the word agape is used distinctively to describe the relationship of the father and the son when it comes to love. Here it says, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love, that's agape, you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Now we should really be careful to understand now, we say that our word is the only noun, that's the key word, the only noun that is used to express the relationship of the Father and the Son in terms of love. Because there is a Greek verb that comes of this word philia, but it's like if you remove the uh, A there, and actually if you remove I-A and put E-O, you get a Greek, uh, Greek verb, phileo, phileo. That's related, again, to the Greek noun. That really means to love. And it is used in relationship to describe the father and the son in John chapter 5, verse 20. John chapter 5, verse 20. It is, for the father loves the son, that's filial. The father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than this. So our Greek word agape is used distinctively to express the redeeming love of God through Christ. Thus, the Apostle Paul described God's love that is demonstrated in Christ's death for our sins using a Greek word agape in Romans chapter 5 verse 8. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. Hold on to Romans We're on to Romans because in this passage also in Romans. Romans 5 verse 8 reads, But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He had love again is agape. So it is redemption love. The apostle used the word to describe the love of God through all because of Christ that nothing can change. In Romans chapter 8 Verse 39. 
the love that God has, nothing will change it. Nothing. I mean, nothing. That's say race. Neither height, nor depth, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, the agape of God, that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now it is the redeeming love of Christ that Apostle Paul conveyed using a Greek word in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Second Corinthians. And hold on to, I mean, we pick up another verse, uh, verse in Second Corinthians. No. Second Corinthians chapter five verse fourteen reads, "For Christ's love, that's a Greek word, get it, compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. In other words, if you understand the love of." Christ for you is compelling you to do something. Now another distinctiveness of our Greek word is for the uniqueness of the Christian life in relation to others. Thus, it is the word the apostle used most commonly to describe the expected relationship uh, of believers with one another. So, writing to the Corinthians, he used our word to describe his unique relationship with them in terms of love as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 4. Second Corinthians chapter 2 verse 4. It is, For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love. That's agape, my love for you. Now, to the Galatians, he used a Greek word in encouraging them regarding serving one another. According to Galatians chapter 5 verse 13. Galatians Galatians chapter 5 verse 13 It is you my brothers we are called to be free but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature rather Serve one another in love. Now the apostle used the word in his thanksgiving to God about the Ephesians for their love for one another. As we read in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15. It is for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, for fellow believers. So he used that for, to describe that unique love relationship between believers. Now it is a Greek word that the Apostle Paul used 
in his prayer on behalf of the Thessalonians to demonstrate their love for each other as stated in his petition to the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 12. Now, of course, that this with the, uh, the apostles' prayer directed to the Father and the, and the Son, which, especially verse 11, tells you, um, sometimes people ask me, is it all right to pray to Jesus Christ? I say, yes, he's God. But besides that, Stephen did that, the, Paul, the apostle Paul did that. I'm not going to read that, but if you go home, you can look at verse 11 of this passage I'm look, uh, going to read. Verse 12 reads, May the Lord... Make your love increase. The Lord here, Jesus Christ, is praying to him. May the Lord inc- uh, make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. Now this, now the Lord answered this prayer of the apostle because uh, the Thessalonians demonstrated their love for each other as implied in the second letter of the apostle to them in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. It is, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. In other words, they are manifesting it more and more. It's, love doesn't increase or decrease. It's just the manifestation. Now, Apostle Peter used a Greek word to describe the distinctive uniqueness of expression of love among believers through a special kind of kiss. They described in First Peter Chapter 5, verse 14. 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 14. It is, greet one another with a kiss of love. Special, special kind of kiss. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, another distinctiveness of our Greek word, is that it is a word that is used most in the New Testament to describe the love that, Holy, that God, the Holy Spirit, produces in the believer. Hence, Apostle Paul referenced this love that the Holy Spirit produces in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Romans Chapter 5, verse 5. It is, and, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. So consequently, the apostle used a Greek word to describe the uh, love as an aspect of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Galatians 
Galatians 5 verse 22. Galatians 5 verse 22 reads, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, that's agape, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, faithfulness. Now, by the way, this is not a command. It's not commanding you to be any of this. It is that's the way you check yourself if you actually feel of the Spirit. This will, this way you know. It's not something you go and manufacture on your own. It's what the Holy Spirit will do in you when He controls you. Now, the distinctiveness then of the use of the Greek word in question helps us to understand that the Greek word is used predominantly in the New Testament to refer to the quality of warm regard for and interest in another. That is what I say. It's very, this is that it, it refers to the quality of warm regard for and interest in another. So the love we're going to be dealing with you have to have that you, you have a warm regard for somebody, but you also have interest in their things, in their affairs. So the word can simply then mean love, affection, or even esteem. So the meaning love in our passage of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verse 1, has in the sense of strong affection and interest in the affairs of another. It has that sense of that you have a strong affection towards somebody, and you also have a, a vested interest really in the affairs of that person. So, with this meaning, then we are now ready to consider what the apostle meant in the verbal phrase of First Corinthians. He said, "But have not love." That we need to understand. But what have not love? But the thing I want you is to, as you live, since we have already gone through the usages of the word, but keep asking yourself, when you think about love for another believer, do you have that quality of warm regard for an interest in the affairs of that person? Now, that's what we're going to see. If you say you love a person, it's not only that you must have a warm regard for that person, but you must be concerned about the affairs of that person. Now, most people, when you do that, they say, you're being nosy. You can't love a person without doing that. So you begin to see, we're going to see where everything in the culture runs contrary to what the Bible teaches about love. So, I want to leave you with that impression. Do you have a warm regard for somebody that you claim you love? Are you interested in the person's affairs? Those two must mesh. Of course, it's this First Corinthians that gave me the definition of the love I gave, but we'll get to that eventually. So, as you live, just get that in your mind. Ask yourself that question. Do I really have a warm, that quality of warm affection or regard for somebody? And am I concerned with the affairs of the person? If you can't answer the both questions, you don't have love. Love must have both. That you must have that, what you say, it's a warm regard. But at the same time, 
you're thinking about the person's affairs. So, that means that it will be eventually, it's a thought, an action process, as we're going to see eventually in our study. Anyway, what we have done is just to clear the deck, so that by next week, we'll begin actually looking at what the apostle is saying about love. Let's pray. As we end our study this morning, there may be someone here or someone listening over the internet that you, if you die now, you go straight to hell. Why? Because you do not have life yet. You've not come to uh, be regenerated. You may be a, a nice person. You may be very helpful to people, but you don't have life yet. That is to say that you have not come to a point where you receive eternal life from God. Now, it's a gift that he gives. And how do you get it? It's, it's, since it's a gift, you have to, uh, anytime somebody gives you a gift, you have to stretch out some your hand to get it. So this gift is one that requires stretching that we call faith. But that faith goes back to the object. The object of your faith is Christ. But see, faith is what every human being has, whether they know it or not. So the issue is the object of faith. You came in this morning, you certainly see it. You had faith. It will carry your weight. You didn't check whether it can carry your weight. You just sat down. You believe that. So the object of your faith is the issue. So for salvation, the object of faith is Jesus Christ. Now who is he? He's God. Who came down to this planet. In a human body. He lived through this awful wall of sin. It was very displeasing to him. But that's why he came. Because he knows that left on our own accord, there's no way we can ever satisfy God. Because the Bible tells us all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Say, if we have all sinned, there's nothing we can do. We're dead. We can help ourselves. So Christ came, taught, did miracles, made claims that He is God in flesh. And so, after all that, He was arrested. A mock trial was made, and He was condemned to die. By the most cruel way the Romans devised to kill a person. Crucifixion. Because it's a painful, slow way of dying. Yet, the Son of God, when he was nailed on the cross, on the ground, was lifted up, sunk on the ground, so that more pain was part of his experience. He didn't say what. He didn't complain until the last three hours on that cross when the sins of the whole world, past, present, future sins, were collected, so to say, in a bowl and poured on the Son of God. That's when the awfulness, the pain of what sin means was so unbearable. That Jesus Christ let out that cry, Eli, Eli, 
Lawa chimakatani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken that you may be brought in. He was forsaken that you may have life. So after that, unlike those who died on the cross, after he did that, he said it is finished. And he dismissed his spirit. And he died, was buried. Three days later, he came out of the grave as he promised that he would. So, the one who says, I am life and resurrection. If you believe in me, though you, you die, you will live. So, if you believe that he died on your behalf and was raised the third day, regardless of what your sins are like, they will be wiped clean and you will receive perfect forgiveness. And your sins will never be used again against you. And that qualifies you to spend eternity with God in heaven. So, believe in Christ. Trust in Him and you have eternal life. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, begin to cause us to begin to think and meditate about what love is all about. As we study these passages, we pray that as we continue this week, that you give us that ability to focus and think about this. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen.